and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select an amazing movie on VHS tape, such as the one we're doing today. We watch it, and then we talk about it. Today, Lindsay chose the film. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about what you picked out? So we watched Simply Irresistible. Starring Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sean Patrick Flannery from 1999. And it definitely feels very much like 1999. Oh, yeah. There's spaghetti straps everywhere, weird chunky heels, and uh, some magical crabs. If I had to explain this movie to someone who'd never heard of it, which I imagine most of our listeners have never heard of this movie... It's a late 90s supernatural rom-com about a magic crab in the restaurant industry. (laughs) I wouldn't say it's about the magic crab. It's more about Sarah Michelle Gellar being a terrible cook who's helped along by a kindly magic crab. Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, Amanda, much like in You've Got Mail... She's inherited her mother's business. In that movie, it was a bookstore. In this, it's a little restaurant in New York called Southern Cross. Okay, except in You've Got Mail, Meg Ryan's actually a competent business owner. Yeah, Amanda can't cook. She's a she's a shitty cook until she gets a magic crab. Essentially, her life was living in a restaurant, and so she didn't imagine doing anything else, and she just grew up to take over the restaurant but apparently never went to school for this, didn't actually prepare whatsoever. This movie's kind of incredible also, just because the cast that they got together for this. You've got Dylan Baker, who I love, uh, Patricia Clarkson, who I'm also a fan of. And he's really wasted in this movie. Oh yeah, all these people are wasted she in this should, movie. She should have been the star. I, yeah. This would have worked much better had she played Sarah Michelle Gellar's part. I do want to do ads, but you, you, you reminded me of the fact that this was originally written for someone older, and the, like someone in their 40s. It makes so much sense imagining an older woman in that role. Sarah Michelle Gellar is so young here, like she's kind of disappointed by life, but she hasn't lived quite long enough to be this disappointed and kind of held back by life. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Holly Hunter was who they were originally looking at, but then I guess maybe it was the producers and the money people involved who were like, no, we gotta do it younger, we gotta do something for the kids, and the teens. And it still didn't take off. Get that vampire slayer in there from the WB. Was Buffy even super popular at this point? Because it started in 97? Yeah, so it would have been on its like second or third season, I imagine. So probably it was doing all right. Yeah, that's kind of peak Buffy, I think, when Angel is still around. I think the other thing is there's an issue with the cover because the cover doesn't really look romantic. She's looking at you as if she's going to curse you. It's also funny because she looks completely different on the cover than she does in the movie. Yeah, she has a different hairstyle. I don't think they took this shot when they filmed it. I do want to get these ads out of the way. There's a lot of them because you chose this tape. (laughs) And that's how it always works out. Um, This tape is previously viewed from Blockbuster, Mm -hmm. which I think is the first time that's happened. Um, It's got the sticker on it and everything. And just like most rental copies, it has a ton of ads on it. Um, It's a real time capsule. I'm going to go through these really quick. Anna and the King. Did you see it? Yeah. 
Jodie Foster, Chow Yun-Fat. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, retelling of The King and I, only without music. I remember seeing this and in the theater. And without Sean as the son. Oh, yeah. I, I did play the son in the uh, 1950s Yul Brenner version. Then we've got a um, a horror movie, Ravenous, Guy Pierce and a, Robert Carlyle. A historical horror movie yeah yeah which is a little bit of a surprise with david arquette in there yeah although he's done he, he's also done bone tomahawk so maybe that's sort of a thing for him office space one of my favorite comedies of this era it's funny the way they marketed that movie yeah it was kind of surprising it was a long ad too mm-hmm. and i don't think they needed it to be that long to sell it because they have so many snippy quotes and things that they can use from it that's another one that sort of flopped on its initial release, kind of because the marketing didn't seem to really know what the movie was. That also happened with the next movie that Mike Judge did, Idiocracy, where it wasn't really until home video where people got to see it. Or until Trump was elected president. And then we got one of Lindsay's mom's favorite movies, Wing Commander. <laughs> so, I don't know if she's actually seen it. I just kept saying while we were watching the trailer, my mom's definitely seen this. Based on the PC game series with Freddie Prinze Jr. and Matt Lillard. I, I actually haven't seen this. I'm surprised I haven't okay. seen it. I have to point this out. You say PC game series, and I think we're at the point now that people rarely say PC except to mean politically correct. Oh, okay. Computer Which, game series. No, but it's just funny how much time has changed because you used to see PC everywhere yeah. in reference to computers. Ugh, the, those, that PC Wing Commander series. <laughs> With all the female pilots and the people of color. God, it's awful. Yeah, but it looks pretty bad. Lots of uh, dicey late 90s CGI in it. When you've got Freddie Prince as your hero wing commander, you know you're in for some trouble. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prince Jr., obviously married in real life. Yeah. Previously on the show, and I know what you did last summer, episode four. But at this moment, she's in Simply Irresistible, and he's in Wing Commander. Do you think this was a rough year for them? I don't know. She still had Buffy, though. That's true. And he had um, She's All That. Yeah. So I guess they're doing all right. I guess I shouldn't be worried. <laughs> I mean, you know how it turns out. Yeah. They ended up doing Scooby-Doo. Yeah. And that was the end of their careers. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, those movies were huge financial hits, at least. I guess so, but is anybody still watching them? Do, do people return to those movies? Maybe kids I do. bet kids do. I bet, I bet parents of our generation, it's like a passing of the torch. Like, let me show you the Scooby-Doo movies. I was such a fan of the Scooby-Doo cartoon. Oh, everybody was, yeah. I think that's was, why I yeah. didn't like the live-action version. The live-action ones didn't really capture the, the same vibe as the cartoon. Yeah. And the CGI was kind of creepy for Scooby. Didn't someone kind of famous, like James Gunn wrote the second one or something? I don't remember. Of the Guardians of the Galaxy director. I think I'm gonna I'm not gonna look that up. I'm just gonna say that's what happened. <laughs> there is also an ad for a very strange thing called Twenty Dates. Oh, it looked awful. It seems like sort of a pre reality television type thing. Yeah, it was definitely something that might have actually done okay had it come out maybe eight years ago. This guy Miles Berkowitz comes on and says he's going to 
combine the two biggest failures of his life, professional and personal, and it's just a lot of awkward encounters where he talks to women and tries to date them unsuccessfully. It looked like something that would have been on TV during the day. Like, that was the filming quality of it. But hold on, folks, because now we're getting into ads for TV shows, and uh, we've got Party of Five. Yeah, that was weird, because it's just like... Thursdays on Fox. Yeah, they were really reaching there. Because I've seen ads on Fox tapes for, like, The X-Files, but those were, like, oh, by the first season on VHS. Well, and just, it's such a of-the-moment thing that's not an ad that's going to last or be useful, because what if they change the night the show's on? Like, that happens all the time with TV, where they'll shift it from Tuesday to Thursday or f- to Friday or whatever. Or it gets canceled after six seasons <laughs> or that yeah but we got all our favorites here we got jennifer love hewitt nev, Ma- campbell. nev campbell uh matthew fox uh yeah i think fox is really just cutting their losses here it's like this movie simply irresistible is a flop let's just load this thing up with as many ads as we can probably And then lastly, we've got my favorite type of ad to have on a VHS tape, and that is the ad for the soundtrack. You were so excited when this started playing. And And then when they announced that there was a music video after. Yes, the music video is by Catalina with a K, everyone's favorite. Um, And the song is Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. I like how they listed out all the artists that were on the soundtrack, and I didn't recognize any of them well marcy playground uh, i know oh, yeah that one yeah they they lead off with that one but and then, then everything they, else after then it goes the hollow bodies the hang-ups catalina with a k sydney and uh i mean if we can skip ahead to the music video that's at the end of the tape after a women's tennis association ad oh that was weird too so you see the credits and then there's just this random ad for women's tennis they probably thought, hey, if people are stupid enough to sit through the entire end credits of Simply Irresistible to watch this music video for this awful song, let's have them watch some tennis on Fox Sports while we're at it. That was so weird. Catalina, I guess is her name, She it sort of just flips between her lip syncing in different outfits. It's a very late 90s music video. Yeah, they had scratchy film effects. Yeah, she's um, wearing leather pants and someone's blowing bubbles off screen and then she's in the woods but it's clearly a set in the light of the full moon let's just say it was so low budget they put it all into her outfits they couldn't even have backup dancers or anything yeah although occasionally it cuts to a guy with a soul patch who sets a record (laughs) down and scratches the record and goes drop it which is uh adds some production value to it oh it was awful Okay, but we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> we're, we're a ways in already into this episode. We haven't said much about the movie. The original title was Vanilla Fog. <laughs> <laughs> so the Vanilla Fog comes from part of her magic crab cooking. I think I think we need to explain the crab yeah, yeah. first before we can do anything else. Okay, so, so the movie opens in uh, contemporary New York. Well... 1999's New York with uh, with the World Trade Center and everything. 
Amanda's hitting the farmer's market shopping for her restaurant. She's such a chef. And then yeah. you find out she knows all the people at the market. And she gets <laughs> the, the kid of one of the vendors tells her don't get the blackberries with a look. Yeah, so she gets the raspberries. I like the detail that all the portobello mushrooms are gone because a rival chef has bought them. Yeah. And you expect that guy to come back, this rival chef, but he's never seen again. The thing that I don't get is she runs a restaurant where they only have regulars who live in the neighborhood who are essentially family friends and they go up there out of a feeling of obligation. So why is she even going to a farmer's market and getting this like fancy produce when she's awful at cooking Mm -hmm. and could probably manage to do sandwiches and stuff okay yeah like she could just have been less ambitious Mm -hmm. and had a simple menu like make it a pizza parlor or something like that's but no she's gonna be a chef with no training whatsoever but then she meets a magical man named gene o'reilly some kind of random white guy in his 30s. It's funny because usually this is the role played by the like magical person of color. Yeah. I was who, saying. Who shares wisdom with, yeah. the, with the naive white person who needs some help. Anyway, he has a barrel of pinky toe crabs and he screams, Take my crabs, Amanda! <laughs> So he's he's essentially just pushing her to change her life and he says something about what her her mom would want her to do and her response is, Well, my mom's dead and he said, Well, she'd still want you to do it. Yeah, he seems to know an, a disconcerting amount of information about her dead mom. Um, and when she asks her aunt later, who also works at the restaurant, she has never heard of this guy. He turns into a cab driver at a certain point in the movie, so there's something magical Mm. about him, too. Cab, crab, follow the money. Uh, (laughs) And that's why he never showed up again in the movie, because they couldn't come up with anything else that rhymed. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if he just keeps showing up in different jobs, like sort of a little Easter egg. I thought he'd be in the background, but I never noticed him anywhere Mm -hmm. else. Because they had a chance to put him in a department store selling fragrances or something, and... He wasn't there. At the farmer's market, um, she chases... One of the crabs escapes, and this crab is a wonderfully awful puppet that you can see the strings <laughs> on. It's kind of, Whenever I see that puppet moving around with the visible strings in a late 90s movie, we keep saying, like, how did this get made? How is any of this approved? I don't understand why this movie exists. This got a wide release. But anyway, the crab runs under a table so she has to apparently she has to crawl after it i don't know why it wouldn't be the crab vendor Mm -hmm. but she comes out under a table and bumps a guy or grabs his she grabs his pants yeah it's like around his ankle and so then he starts hitting on her because he thinks that she must be digging on him and then he gets bitten by or not bitten he gets pinched by the crab (laughs) yeah um, and this man, of course, is Sean Patrick Flannery. Uh, his character is Tom Bartlett, who's the manager of a department store on Fifth Avenue, owned by Dylan Baker. You know that he's a big, important businessman because he makes graphs of everything. Mm-hmm. So he's he at later, like a few minutes later in the film, he he ends up showing a graph to his assistant Patricia Clarkson about how he. 
all of his relationships go bad after the third date, so then she essentially makes a joke alluding to him being bad at sex. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty good. That was a pretty good scene. I mean, there's definitely good scenes in this movie. But, of course, this magical this is the magical crab that pinches him that's trying to get them together. We find out, of course, that Amanda's restaurant is struggling. The rent has just been raised to $5,000 a month, which seems cheap for New York. It is 1999. Yeah. It's not that big. It's a pretty small, intimate restaurant. Those blue walls are very striking. Those, like, dark blue walls Mm -hmm. in the restaurant. We couldn't tell what the restaurant was called for a while. I kept thinking it was the Southern Crow. (laughs) Yeah. But it turned out it's the Southern Cross, which still doesn't really mean much. She takes this crab and a bunch of other crabs to the restaurant to make lunch. (laughs) Little does she know, one of them escapes the basket and ends up hiding amongst the shelves. Yeah. And on that shelf it stays for most of the movie, and there's occasional cutaways to it fidgeting around and waving its pinchers around. We meet Amanda's uh, best friend, Nolan, who might be gay. It's not unclear. Yeah, it's not clear because they have him say stuff as if he might be straight but then he's also the guy that's standing there as she's showing him all her different dresses and she wants him to weigh in on her outfit so she doesn't treat him as a straight male friend it feels like he was gay in an early draft of the script and the studio said tone it down unfortunately that's sort of what it feels like oh that's probably right because his character his character also doesn't have a lot to do other than be supportive, but then remind you that she's attractive. Yeah, the actor's Larry Giller Jr., who I know is playing D'Angelo on the first couple seasons of The Wire. But it's interesting because his uh, he's basically there to give her like awful advice. Like he's he's the one that puts the idea in her head that when men adjust their belts, that means that they're thinking about sex. Yeah. And so then she walks all around and all these guys are grabbing at their belts. And so she's realizing there are all these guys struggling with their erections in public (laughs) constantly. I guess so. Makes men seem kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Everyone seems kind of ridiculous in this. We find out that Tom Bartlett is also sort of in the restaurant business because he's planning the grand opening of a restaurant on the top floor of his department store. Oh, could we also say her 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 black friend, her sous chef, is essentially the token person of color in the nineties movie? Oh, because yeah. it's always they always have to have one token person, and that's his character. And clearly, they again they didn't really know how to write him. Yeah, the way they dress him is also kind of he doesn't really fit into the restaurant with her either. He I, wears a shirt that says USA for most of the movie. You felt like their wardrobe budget was very, very small. Well, because Sarah Michelle Gellar keeps wearing the same outfits over and over. Like, that gold top keeps showing up. She has three tops and two dresses, it seems like. (laughs) He's also opening a restaurant. We kind of can see where this is going. Um, Dylan Baker's overseeing the project. Uh, And Dylan Baker, I guess, owns the entire store. Mm-hmm. Like, it's his family's name. Dylan Baker, he's one of those lovable, kind of strange, middle-aged men. Yeah. With, like, he, he's got this voice that's sort of like this. I heard a audiobook where he read The Corrections, and just hearing that voice in my ear <laughs> for many hours is pretty soothing. 
But he's, yeah, but again, he's given nothing to do in this movie, really. Yeah, you almost wish that they developed Patricia Clarkson and Dylan Baker more and did more with their characters because I'm more interested in them than Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sean Patrick Flannery. I don't care about their characters. Mm -hmm. They don't make me care about them at all. I I actually dislike Sean Patrick Flannery's character. I mean, he sort of becomes, you know, anti-witchcraft at a certain point (laughs) and is like... Talking about her being evil and yeah. all this stuff. He completely turns on her. He's got a very puritanical view of yeah. her craft. Well, and he's just kind of shitty. Like, he's dating Amanda Peet's character, who's in there for a hot second, because mm-hmm. they really like to waste actors in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And he's hitting on Sarah Michelle Gellar right in front of Amanda Peet after he showed a chart to his assistant about how he is terrible with women and he can't seem to figure this out. And I'm glad you brought up the scene with Amanda Peet because that's sort of the inciting incident of the movie where we kind of learn what the power of this magic crab is all about. Because before, Sarah Michelle Gellar didn't even know how to cook with crab. She didn't even know what to do with this barrel of crab. She didn't know how to cook with food. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean... It's pretty amazing that she had three regulars at this restaurant. Basically, the power is whatever emotion she's feeling at the time goes into what she's cooking, right? Yeah, and then regardless of how she's feeling, everything is delicious. It's just that that emotion then goes into whoever eats her food. So if she's feeling angry, they get angry. If she's feeling um, sad, they cry. Mm Mm-hmm. Later, there's a fun shot where a teardrop falls from her eye, and it falls into the soup, and it you can Turns see, pink. like, this chemical reaction. Sean Patrick Flannery and Amanda Peet order Crab Napoleon and Chicken Payar, respectively. What is Chicken Payar? I had never heard of it. I like how Amanda Peet, because they were trying to show you that she's kind of like a snooty bitch, because you don't want to be mm-hmm. rooting for her, and so she says... Oh, I don't want the crab. I want something simple. Could you make me chicken payar? She's like the stepmom in It Takes Two, basically. Uh, now, I'm not entirely clear on this, but I think it's that she made the crab Napoleon. Well, she didn't really make it. It just appeared in front of her. That's another power that she has. This food can just appear. Yeah. That happens later with the, the caramel eclairs. Mm-hmm. But I think that she made the crab Napoleon with love. And the chicken payar she made with anger. So that's why Amanda Pete throws plates all over the... Yeah, completely flips out. Although I think I think some of her attraction comes through in that, in that crab too. Because he's just like smearing it all over his face. Mm-hmm. As if he's trying to just meld with the crab. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he sort of goes native there or something. The thing that I don't get is she sees them acting completely bizarre, and she sees him smearing this food all over his face, and she doesn't think to herself, wow, this guy's a fruitcake. I shouldn't be associating with him. Well, another thing is she's just so ambivalent about her powers the whole time. She never has a moment where she's like surprised by what she's doing. She no. reads very flat throughout. Yeah, she just is kind of she just goes, oh, "Okay, I'm awesome at cooking now and I'm the best." And she mm. attributes it all to herself and doesn't give the crab any credit. I mean, a movie I compare this to is Teen Witch, which I know is a favorite of yours. 
I you will be careful what you say. <laughs> well, I'm also a fan of Teen Witch, but well, I mean, to give Teen Witch its credit, that's a movie where she's surprised when she turns a man into a frog and yeah. things like that. Like you, you get the sense that she's feeling the awesome weight of her powers. I think that's the thing. They call this movie simply irresistible, but she's so both of them. I mean, he he is a little interesting i guess at least he reacts to things but she is so bland and flat throughout the film mm-hmm. and i don't understand why she was directed to be that way because i can't imagine that that's what they were really intending but apparently it was because that's the result i really would have gone with an older cast for this i think you can really just bump up dylan baker and patricia clarkson yeah. to be the leads and then just get rid of those characters. And it would yeah. be a much more interesting movie. Well, and it makes more sense for the character because she's so tired and bummed out by life and stuff. It, it, you can tell... When you told me it was originally written for an older wo- uh, for an older woman to play somebody in their 30s or 40s, it just made more sense. Sarah Michelle Gellar is so young here. She looks like she's, you know, maybe 21, 22. Mm-hmm. So you just... Doesn't... I don't buy it that she's trying to run this restaurant. I don't buy it that she's really obsessed with all this. Or I, I, I don't, I, you know, the way she talks about love and how she's nervous and what do guys think now and stuff like that, that doesn't make sense for her. And I think it's part of the reason this movie was such a big flop was because the teenage demographic doesn't really care about the intersection of great food and great drink and romance yeah. and magic. Like, that's more like the Chocola sort of mm-hmm. demographic. Like, it need, yeah. they needed to age it up a bit. If and they had a woman who was like 40, 42, yeah. I think it would have worked really well. Yeah, I mean, Holly Hunter is who they wanted, and I think that would have worked. It still would have been a weird movie. Yeah, no, but I, they, they should have embraced the weirdness a little bit more they seem like oh we're doing this like magical realism thing but hey it's also a 90s teen comedy yeah. and it felt like there was such a foot in each world that it feels so weird throughout yeah so they're they're completely unfazed by what happened in the restaurant this whole scene we never see amanda pete again but those plates that she broke need replacing and he offers to take her to the department store so she can get new plates I think he really said, you know, you can contact me at my office and I'll arrange for it. He didn't really invite her to shop for plates with him. I think that's kind of what she decided to take from that. Yeah, I guess so. But I also don't get why this big businessman who has all this money wouldn't have just written her a check in that moment so she could replace the plates on her own terms and stuff. Well, he was under the influence of the magic crab Napoleon that he'd just eaten. They try to give Sean Patrick Flannery a quirk, and it's that he's obsessed with air, paper airplanes, but yeah. it doesn't really do anything. They could have just left that out. You associate paper airplanes as something that like a slacker does. Like when you're not listening to somebody, you make a paper airplane. I guess the whole second act of the movie is just the restaurant starts doing really well because they got... The magic crab is their ringer now. They, there's, there's a great scene where a guy who's really happy at this meal says, I'll have the same thing again except in reverse this time. I'll start with dessert and work back to the appetizer. Yeah, and then the sous chef makes a joke about having to back him out of the restaurant 
like you know as if they're using a forklift or something yeah. and the guy's a heavy guy that seems like something really rude to say to your customer we also uh witnessed the budding romance between dylan baker and patricia clarkson which is totally motivated by magical eclairs that the crab helps sarah michelle geller make of course they're eclairs so they're just a little phallic yeah the eclairs just i don't even know if there was an emotion involved with those because they just seem to be a straight up aphrodisiac yeah um well didn't she make them she made a bunch after they had sex which we still haven't explained the vanilla fog can can you explain what that is Sean Patrick Flannery shows up to her restaurant really late because he wanted to lie about having something to do in the evening because he's a rude loser. Yeah. Because he wanted to, you know, make her wait and pretend that he's not interested because that's great to do and it makes him a really good person. And so he shows up late, but he brings vanilla orchids. And she ends up putting the vanilla orchids in the... I think she's making she's making a dessert, and it might be cream for the eclairs or something. She puts the orchids in there, and then suddenly a smoke, it's like a smoke machine has gone on, and there's this fog that's floating throughout the restaurant, and they end up making sweet love under the cover of the fog. And while the your, crab watches. <laughs> yeah, while the crab watches right in front of the crab. <laughs> And that's your vanilla fog. And it shows up again later in the movie. I still think that's a more appropriate title than simply irresistible. It doesn't have a great ring to it, though. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like Vanilla Sky, which is a couple years later. Anyway, there's the traditional end of second act falling out between these two lovebirds, in this case because he's convinced she's a witch. And that she's been enchanting him and doing mind control to make him fall in love with her, which, which kind is, of, Yeah, that's fair. A little bit, a little bit, because it's all that enchanted food. Yeah, I mean, he was already interested in her, but she kind of sealed the deal with all this uh, magical food. Mm-hmm. Man, the cover of Simply Irresistible is sitting right there, and it's like Sarah Michelle Gellar is glaring at us for making fun of her movie. It doesn't look like a light rom-com from the cover. It looks mm-hmm. like, it makes me think more of Cruel Intentions than yeah. a light rom-com. Well, they were probably capitalizing on that, because that was a pretty popular movie. Um, this falling out doesn't last long, though, because the French chef quits... And Amanda instantly takes the job because Dylan Baker and Patricia Clarkson have just become junkies on her food. They're like drug addicts when it comes to her eclairs. Yeah. Because it's like fueling their entire physical relationship. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, she makes the uh, the dinner for the opening of the restaurant. It goes over like gangbuster. Well, first everyone cries because mm-hmm. she cried into the soup. Yeah. But then she quickly corrects that. and uh... Well, then they go silent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they cry a bunch, then they go silent, and then there's another weird dance scene to, I guess, go with what they had earlier. Is that... Wait, does that happen just yet? This is another thing. This is a movie aimed at teenagers that has all these allusions to Fred Astaire. Like, what was the audience for this movie? Who... The audience should have been, if they had a 40-something-year-old lead, it would have worked. This this could have been a much better movie, although I kind of enjoy it for the disaster that it is. 
But yeah, so they have these dance scenes that are supposed to be paying homage to Fred Astaire, except neither of these guys is great at dancing. Mm. So then you don't even connect it to Fred Astaire at all. And it seems just kind of, it's a waste of our time as the viewers because it doesn't do anything. Again, Dylan Baker and Patricia Clarkson are better dancers in their (laughs) scene. Like there's your movie right there. I think it's just because Sarah Jessica uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. It, I think it's just because Sarah Michelle Geller and Sean Patrick Flannery, despite being actors that go by three names, <laughs> both they just have no chemistry. I've seen at least Sarah Michelle Geller have chemistry with an, other actors in like Buffy. Don't you yeah, think? she she has chemistry with some of the actors in Buffy, like David Boreanaz, right? Yeah, yeah. So she's, she's got the chops for it, but it just is not happening here. I think just because this script just never really develops her character whatsoever. Yeah. And she seems just completely bored by all the magic happening around her. Mm-hmm. I, she well, has that... no curiosity about her yeah, powers. I was going to say, she's not bored by the magic. She just doesn't even notice it. So anyway, they make up... And they dance, and uh, they levitate off the floor, and that's kind of it, right? Yeah. Not a whole lot happens in this movie. Nope. <laughs> and then we're treated to that uh, great Catalina music video. Whew! All right, well, that covers Vanilla Fog. I mean, it's simply irresistible. <laughs> Lindsay, as you know, we have a certain rating for this show. Buy it, rent it, tape over it. Um, what's your verdict? <laughs> I hesitate, because it is kind of a funny, weird, quirky movie, but it's a tape over it. It's really bad. They <sighs> have a potentially great cast, but completely misuse everyone. It just doesn't make sense. Nothing comes together in this at all. It's not good, but it's amusing. So, I mean, I think if you're into something weird and don't mind that it's bad, it's fun to watch. Okay, well, I was on the fence, too, and I think I'm leaning towards buy it. (laughs) (laughs) And here's my reasoning. This is our second time seeing this movie, and I know we're going to watch it a third time. We're probably going to watch it again. We're, I mean, we've, we're, so far, we've seen... The thing is, is that I hate it so much more. Like, I, I, I disliked it. Okay, how, how do I put this? I disliked aspects of it, but enjoyed watching it the first time. This time... I I still kind of enjoyed watching it, but I was so preoccupied by what I hated about it. Yeah, you do lose something the second time because you know where it's going, whereas the first time it's like, what are we watching? Like, <laughs> what is going to happen next? This really is great to watch that first time when you're going in a little bit blind. Yeah. Yet I know I'm going to watch this movie again. <laughs> For all its flaws, it's still, like, it's amazing that this movie was even made. It really it is, is such astounding. a profoundly weird and wrong movie. And in this era of just, like, intensely focus-grouped films, I mean, this is a major Hollywood release. And yes, it was a That's bomb true. for obvious reasons, but I think it's just a cultural artifact. It's just so interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I did spend a lot of this time watching it going, how did this get made? How did this get made? Yeah, like if I taught a community college, like, adjunct film class, I would screen (laughs) this movie in it. Just because it's so bizarre. The central romance is completely unappealing. 
And it seems like everyone involved knew that, but just continued anyway. And there's a magic puppet crab where you can see the the strings and the rods operating it. There's just the total uh, lack of effort on everyone's <laughs> part is just astonishing. And I think it's it sort of is a masterpiece. Okay, that's really a stretch. That's really a stretch. Uh, it's not a great film, but I think it's an important film. I'll say <laughs> that. That is also absurd. <laughs> okay, well, it's amusing garbage. How about that? <laughs> well, Sean... What are we going to watch next time? And not Simply Irresistible again. <sighs> okay, well, if we can't watch Simply Irresistible again, we're coming back into baseball season, so I'm sort of in the in a baseball mood. kind of. And there, I've always had a blind spot. This is a very famous movie. Uh, former President George W. Bush said it's among his favorite movies of all time. It stars... A hometown hero of my hometown of Isilia, Kevin Costner. I'm talking about Field of Dreams. Wait, you've never seen Field of Dreams? I've never seen Field of Dreams. That astounds me. And there is a VHS copy of it sitting right over there on our shelf. I say it's time we dust it off and correct this. Is that a movie that you grew up with? There are so many movies that I saw as a kid, and then I just have this vague recollection of maybe one scene... So I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw it, but I would have been maybe five or six or something. I've seen other Kevin Costner baseball movies like Bull Durham, but that's just one that I... Have you seen the other Kevin Costner classic, Waterworld? Oh, yeah. Everyone's seen Waterworld. And I've seen the uh, stunt the show. Okay, I've seen that too. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that's more famous than the movie itself. It still exists, too. Wait, it does? Yeah. But anyway, next time, Field of Dreams. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. You can contact us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 